welcome to the Two World Podcast, where you can hear thoughts and reflections on unique intersections between faith and culture. Tune in regularly for this foray into feelings of surprise and interconnectedness and aha moments in life when two worlds come together. Now join your hosts, Barney and Jacob, for this most recent episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Two World Podcast. Uh, today, we are going to dive into another Northern Exposure TV show episode. And I guess you might say that uh, three of us is inappropriate for this particular uh, dive into the episode because the episode of this uh, 1990s television show is called Duets. So we will uh, we will encounter that. And, and more here. Um, I am very much, again, privileged to be part of this podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. And I'd like to introduce our two co-hosts. First, we have... I am Barney. And I am Jacob. Yes. And I am Ken. And um, we truly do hope you will enjoy this episode of the Two World Podcast. I... um. I happened to be chatting with my dad and um, he <laughs> he said that he listened to our previous episode and he said, I watched that one where, De- where um, Ed meets his dad and he's like, the things you guys talked about didn't match up at all <laughs> with what I was watching. And I realized, I think last time we were all so excited and ready to go with that episode to talk about it that we forgot to say during the episode. Um, you know, we we covered it in the description, but during the episode, we forgot to say that our previous episode was called The Big Kiss, and it was from season two. And okay. here we are in season four today. So okay. if you previously watched the season four episode, please go back, <laughs> watch <laughs> season two called The Big Kiss and listen to our previous show again. And then maybe watch season four duets and watch this one again, too. <laughs> Good. Mm-hmm. Before we started recording today, we were talking just briefly about the title duets, and I had asked Ken and Barney if we could approach our conversation today in light of the relationships between uh, various couples of people in, in the episode and how there is either a disharmony or a harmony in their duet <laughs> that they're working through, and how by the end of the episode, how might that um, have changed. And so just to get us started, I wanted to ask you, Ken and Barney, of the various duets that are being performed, so to speak, using that language in the episode, which one stands out to you the most? Is there one that comes to the forefront that says, wow, that really captured my attention this episode? Well, I guess for me, um, the background of this episode for for our viewers, uh, part part of one of the subplots is that there's a piano tuner named uh, Arlen who comes to the Brick, which is the bar slash restaurant, uh, which is an integral part of this program, and he comes to tune the piano, very old piano uh, in the Brick. Um, he is sightless, and um, he's very gruff, rude, sarcastic. Um, this unlikable character as presented 
and he clashes with Holling, the owner of the uh, Bar Grill, um, throughout the program. And uh, it's interesting to watch um, that duet um, go about their business in conflict. And then as the program progresses, um, Arlen obviously um, picks up a friendship with Marilyn, who is the person who works in Dr. Joel Fleischman's office as his office assistant. And there's no conflict whatsoever with Marilyn. He is giving her piano lessons and they play delightfully together. And in the end, Holling finds a way to to sort of get inside the psyche of, of Arlen. And, and there's some, not total, but some reconciliation between the two. Makes for comical moments in this program, um, as well as what's going to happen between these two. I like how you mentioned that there was a lot of comical moments. I, when I was watching this show, this episode again, I um, found that I remembered a lot of the lines from this one. Mm. Not that this episode is like my personal favorite or I've watched it so many times, but as I watched it, I was like, I started saying a lot of the lines together, like um, <laughs> especially <laughs> Arlen when I think he sends um, Pauline <laughs> to like go get the piano hammers or something hauling this is you know it says you know did you want me to do you really want me to do that or that's over 200 miles away and and harlan says he says read my lips einstein yes and just his gruffness and the way he kept calling hauling names like jughead you know not not seriously insulting names but still you know like just yeah goading him you know getting under his skin a little bit but then he, he had that really good line yeah so there there's so much tension between them you know arlen obviously wasn't invited um or we don't know who invited maybe it was Marilyn. i don't know um i guess they leave that up to our imagination um and you know we could really get philosophical and, and think you know who is this arlen character in the end any um but um yeah somehow he shows up and he's he announces you know he doesn't really leave it up to to debate he announces that he's going to tune this piano not for free and Pauline is just stuck having to pay him and and there's a lot of um feeling of Pauline getting rankled throughout it but yeah like you said they they come together at the end with kind of a um mutual respect for one another and and then yeah that's it's a nice way that it's resolved uh realistically i think especially um thinking of the foot that they started off on and then where they ended up uh, where their story ends up uh, at the end um did you have thoughts jacob about about this, yeah. this opinion? well um particularly about their conversation at the end when they're drinking together i was wondering if if it would be okay with you both, if I read just a few of the lines that they said. So Alan says to Holling, you know, the other day, I really thought you might hit me. Was I right? And Holling replies, no, but it had something else in mind. And Alan says, which was? <laughs> Holling says, I was going to help you cross the street right in front of a logger's truck. And, and and Arlen says, not bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. then, you know, after that, you know, he goes on to say, um, 
how Arlen goes on to say how he used to drink a lot. And he said, you know, there was a time when I drank a lot too much self-pity perhaps, but I had the perfect cover. You see, no one gives a second thought to a blind man walking into walls. And I thought, you know, he's a humorous uh, guy and he deflects a lot of situations with his um, sarcasm and his humor. But, um, you know, in that brief instant, he does reveal a little bit of his, maybe the struggle of his own um, life journey a little bit. And so I don't know if that helped hauling, but I, I kind of felt like there was some amount of connection, even after all of that um, tension between the two. And it was a little glimpse of opening up the door, a crack, you know, and um, even though it was shrouded with, with humor and sarcasm, but what right. did, yeah, what with, did you with, Within that scene, Jacob, you know, he also said, and, and this was no surprise, I'm sure to, to the three of us, people, people expect, um, a blind, you know, a blind man to be nice, you know, look at that nice blind man. And then he says something to the effect of, you know, you have to be what you are and I'm not that. Yeah. yeah I, I, I really liked how they, um, I really appreciated Arlen's character in a lot of ways. Um, e even to the fact where Pauline was really trying to kind of, um, what, like, um, kind of extended olive branch you know he was really trying to get things going with Arlen at the end where he told when Holling told the story about how he heard the music coming from the the lake and he you know walked around the lake three times and couldn't find, find where it was coming from and it has it was such a big impact on him he's trying to share this story personal story about music hoping that they can build some foundation and connection there and Arlen just you know gives him this real sarcastic response you know like oh wow you know something like that. but it was through um almost through their dislike for one another or Holling's dislike toward Arlen kind of being put Holling having to kind of face um um what you could say like I want to say like maybe like a disability in a, in a way like hauling being bossed around he in a way is putting him uh, you know off off of his um how he how his life normally is so he, he's kind of feeling how it is to be put out a bit um and and then they they make the connection like Jacob said when Arlen was opening up about drinking and and opening up about how a lot of people want to say, oh, look at that nice blind man, how well he gets along. But then like Ken said, you know, he said, I've got to be true to myself. And and I think from through through the whole episode, especially maybe Jacob watching it the first time, maybe we didn't expect to see this side of Arlen in the end. And 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 then his real poignant comment where he said, you know, if you gave me a new set of eyes, I would be your friend for life. You know, that's interesting to see this point of view from I mean I don't know how many of us uh, of us how much experience we have being around people who can't see and hearing how how maybe if they've been born that way or if it happened later on in life and their experiences but I don't think any of us really going into watching this story based on what we maybe kind of generally know about people who are unsighted thought he would say that I think we were probably 
more like thinking, kind of thinking along the lines that he prefaced us with, you know, oh, look at that nice spine man, how we think, oh, you know, look at him, he's persevering. Um, he's accepted his, um, his disability, but instead he says, no, anything in the world to be scientific in is what he wants. And that I thought the writing was just so good with, with this character to bring that reality and and kind of shake us up uh, us as the audience to to look at um this uh his this character and people who go through the same thing that he does um in a more realistic way do you think that um when holling shared that story in an attempt to extend an olive branch that the response that kind of uh, critical mocking response was also a check to, to tell Holling, like, I don't need your sympathy. Like, like in a way he has his own sense of dignity. Like, even though other people want to um, view him as, you know, like he said, a nice blind man, but he has his own sense of self-worth and like, even though he's, <laughs> it's, it's so tricky because Holling's trying to be kind, but in the way that he's doing it, um, it's not, uh, being received as, you know, something that the person's interested in, but then when they have a drink there, it kind of, it's a different, I don't know. There's a different, uh, connection that emerges when Holland can just listen to the person and, you know, understand he can't give him a new set of eyes, but he can understand that, that, that person that, you know, has their own approach and is maybe frustrated with the way people often treat them. And so Holling kind of respects that. I don't know. What do, what do you think of that? Do you think that there's some element of that going on? And if so, um, how, yeah, how does that contribute to where they end up? I think that's a great point, Jacob. Um, and it's always interesting to get how your eyes view, view these episodes. Yeah. I think it absolutely, um, was, is solid. Um, in the very beginning, in the first scene where they met, Pauling, and, and this goes back to something Barney was saying as well, you know, we try to sympathize in and find a commonality, you know, Holling uh, says, you know, I knew this blind person up in, but, but it's, it's, you know, you're not blind. And okay. Okay. I get, I get that. It, I, and, and maybe I'm reading too much into it. To go back to the scene, Jacob, you were describing when they drank together. I liked how when Holling brought the bottle out and the two glasses, he set them down pretty loudly. And and you could count the glasses and you knew the bottle was there. And that, in my mind, the writers then let that bleed into when they finished their first shots. And, uh, and Arlen said, uh, you cheated me this time on the amount you know he's listening to the the water being poured and hauling taking all that in now and saying i i need to accept what he is for what he is yeah th th that was a great um uh example that you gave uh ken where uh, from the beginning hauling is trying to make some connection to kind of just get his footing in this relationship of this guy barging and saying, I'm going to tune the piano. Then 
<laughs> it's funny that Arlen said, you know, I used to have a dog once and, you know, then things got rough and it's, man's best friend tastes a lot like chicken, you know. <laughs> but another one of his, you know, jokes I, I, I imagine. Um, and then that, plus the story about the music, I think probably Arlen was seeing these as kind of superficial, you know, these are nice stories. Okay, yeah, sure. But he probably has a sense this is not the person that Hauling is. If Hauling loved music so much, the piano would be in tune, you know. But um, when they're drinking, then I think Harlan sensed that, you know, Hauling is being finally stopped, you know, like swimming against the, the current here and he's being who he is. And so Harlan can be who who he is. And, you know, Hauling, Hauling you know, called him, uh, you know, you're a thoroughgoing SOB, he said, you know, so they're kind of finally seeing eye to eye and accepting each other as they are. And not, Hauling's not feeling like the disability is in the way where I have to be extra nice to this guy. I liked how, <laughs> how Shelley said, you know, you've got to remember, he's like Mr. Magoo, only worse, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a lot of good lines in this episode. And, um, Finally, they're seeing each other just as people. And then that's when they make a lot of traction in their right, relationship. Right. I really appreciated that. Shelly had the other funny moment where she was first introduced to him. Um, and, you know, and so Shelly, oh, you're blind. And then she starts to talk to him as if he were deaf. Really loud. And then Arlen, Arlen's response yeah. was just and, and, classic. It was a moment where she was kind of a bubblehead. And then, of course, his comment about that's how I like him. <laughs> and he's like, I, I may be blind, Sherlock, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I like him. Oh, and Holly had no comeback because what can you say? No. <laughs> oh, There's um, something you brought up too, um, Barney, that. I don't know if this ties in with the story very much, but it seems like Arlen um, recognizes the uniqueness of the piano and its needs, so to speak, and like really takes that seriously. Whereas Halling doesn't really even, I mean, he knows the piano's there, but he knows very little about the instrument and isn't that concerned about the instrument. And it's kind of a, um, what, what do you want to say? Um, a disproportionate, it's a, um, when something's not balanced, what is that called? Um, when there's um, asymmetrical um, interest in this thing, like, and that, I think that happens in life sometimes where somebody cares about something very deeply and somebody else just casually knows it's there, but is not all that interested. And it could be frustrating. Like th this piano tuner, that's his life. Like he, he probably views each piano as a unique different thing you know but for somebody like calling well that's a piano it's just like any other piano and so he has the specific uh types of parts that go for it that are needed and um he knows exactly what's needed to to bring the piano to its best state for what it can do and um it reminds me of when we get our piano tuned um at the very beginning i just knew very little about the piano and our particular piano tuner who had actually taught Barney piano lessons. Uh, oh, mm -hmm. uh, excuse me. Uh, let me pause, um, mute my thing. Um. Yeah. So 
I was thinking that this might be um, thinking about the piano being in tune, whatnot. Um, you know, uh, I I kind of liked the quote that um, that or the the one that Ken brought up, where he was saying that um, that uh, Marilyn points out to Arlen that the what the D above middle C is flat, and then Arlen has that that they have that interesting. Um, conversation about, um, you know, do you know anything about Persian rugs? And Marilyn names a bunch of Persian rugs. And then, and then she's like, no, <laughs> I don't know anything about Persian rugs. And then he says that, you know, they, after all those thousands years of work and thousands of knots they tied, that one is always tied incorrectly. I thought that was a, a fun question that, that you posed, Ken, especially in light of these days, I've been reading a lot of books by um, Susan Woods F uh, Fisher, and um, she writes about Amish, um, just um, novels. And um, it, I, the way that she portrays it, I can't make I can't make generalizations, but the way that she portrays it is that when Amish women make quilts, they intentionally leave some of the stitches wrong. Um, probably, I think, in the same intention as why the um, Persian rug not tires, stitchers, creators would leave one um, not tied incorrectly to. So what is the meaning behind that? It, it escaped me. I, I, took it as, I took it as Arlen thinking that he's a pretty good piano tuner. <laughs> and that if he didn't leave that one flat, the piano would be tuned exactly perfect. <laughs> that was my okay. that was the way yeah. I took it. <laughs> I don't know about you. In, in the original context, the the Persian rugs, I was just curious. So I was doing a little research about it. And mm -hmm. you know, it was um a religious belief, um, like yeah. for the for the Muslim rug maker, mm -hmm. like only God would make the perfect um thing. And so ah. they, they didn't have the right to try to, you know, um reach that height of creativity that they would also make a perfect thing. So intentionally they leave one, one loop um, incomplete or undone so that it reflects that. And, yeah. and, and I, so I, I, go, please go yeah, ahead. I, I, I'm thinking that that is the same reasoning behind um, quilting, um, leaving a, uh, a stitch done the wrong way with quilting as well. I think is the, is the same uh, reasoning. Mm. Yes. And the, Very good. Uh, and the, so I wonder for Arlen what his, you know, greater sense of awe or reverence is too that he would leave, he would choose to leave something subtly imperfect out of respect. I don't know what, what it would be. <laughs> he doesn't really reveal that, but, um, but he seems to have a, a great, uh, what, uh, an attentiveness to his craft and there's a greater purpose to it. If you, I mean, if, you, cause what, you know, I, I got cut off earlier when I was trying to mention this, um, about Leonard Kilmer, who is who was Barney's piano teacher and, and the piano tuner for us. But after he tunes the piano, he plays it and yeah. he enjoys playing it, it seems. I mean, I enjoy listening to him. <laughs> and mm. um and I was start, starting to say this earlier, um, but I had to stop for a moment to to mute my mic. But um he he understood what the instrument needed to get to this level of sound. Like and on our piano, he had to replace all these uh, grommets 
that um, regulate the vibration of the key when you hit it so that it's not, not raspy sounding. And when he first tuned our piano, he's like, you know, to really make this instrument um, sound as good as it could, we need to replace all these. And I'm like, okay, you know, we, you're the expert. So, so it was a quite an involved process. And, um, but he brought our piano, um, not only from the place of what had these raspy sounds to not having them anymore, but he brought it from multiple steps too low um, to being up in standard tuning. And that took years. Like he came multiple times, you know, doing this, um, doing these, these piano tunings. And, and then when he plays it, it just, um, it's this beautiful kind of um, satisfying end to that whole journey. And he's so good. And so in this episode, when we see him playing and when we see Marilyn joining him, it's like, it's the music is enhanced by the instrument that's in tune and the people are enjoying the the skill of the musician, but also indirectly the skill of the tuner, you know? And, and mm. so I don't know. I just think like he has, seems to have, it's not, it's not a casual thing for him, this tuning it's, it's like, it's very purposeful and, um, and it reaps um, very good result. Like people are, are drawn together there at, at the brick as they listen and oh, yeah. yeah, stirred at, at the very end or yeah. e even listening to Marilyn practice on it when he's kind of guiding her, you know, easy, on, softer on the repeats, you know, and then, and then at the end, when they play a duet on the same piano, what a great way to finish that episode, I thought. Right. As they panned across everyone. Oh, yeah. Jacob, I very much appreciate your research there. It, it not only enlightened me to uh, why you leave flaw, but it also helps me to see why Marilyn was selected as the one to take lessons, you know, she's a person that just really looks around and 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 see things so deeply and listens very well to Joel Fleischman a lot, even when he's ranting, and that she would be the one to pick up a flat note from the instrument. At that. Wow. Yes. Shall we move on to the other mm -hmm. major subplot? which uh, um, there were this was sort of a minor one comparatively dramatically to what else occurred yeah i thought that um I, I guess maybe i'll take a turn to talk about duets here and um this actually was kind, kind of three people um if we include one who waits um mm -hmm. and i thought that as i was watching it and then i was actually reading through the script again before the show and um chris doesn't chris doesn't have a huge role um i think he only has two or three scenes but he talks about the two galaxies that are kind of dancing together he, this is kind of introducing the duets thing i think and i think that this was a real good illustration for ed and his dad um you know dancing closer and closer and closer together it took him a, a while to, um, well, I, it was all from Ed, you know, his dad didn't know what was going on. His dad thought that Ed was there to lay shingles on the roof. But, um, you know, Ed, Ed, we see Ed dancing and working and dancing and working and getting closer and closer to finally being able to open up to his dad. I think that we, we get the um, impression at the beginning that he was happy and content and um, at peace with thinking from the previous episode, uh, previous episode tied to the storyline from two years prior, 
that um, he had met his dad and then they changed a tire together and that was it. That was all he needed to know. And now he has the chance to really meet his dad and communicate with his dad and be vulnerable by saying, do you know that you're my dad? And um, another amazing line where Joel, where Ed and one who waits are talking together and, and Ed is talking about his fear and like, yeah, how, of what happened with Luke Skywalker and one who waits says, Oh, Joe Skywalker's boy, you know, as if this is a common, you know, native American last name. <laughs> and then Ed has to clarify this. And I just love that line so much because it just, you know, it just works so well the way they do that. But um, yeah, I, 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 when I watched this the first time, I, couldn't understand at the very end with his dad. I couldn't understand for the life of me, why is the door to the trailer not opening? <laughs> and how about for you, Jacob, when you, when you watch this, just this one time? Yes. Um, when, he, when Ed is going to leave without telling his father um, the news that he's his son, it, I was wondering at first, is that okay? Is Ed subconscious? Like, yeah kind of intervening or preventing him. And he's like, so conflicted, he's going back and forth. And, mm -hmm. but then we come to find out that it's the one who waits intervened and actually held the door <laughs> closed so that Ed <laughs> couldn't get out before telling his father who he was. And that moment is um, so important for Ed that the one who waits really helps get him across the finish line, so to speak with that one, because he's just, for whatever reason, it just gets comes right up to the edge of, of that and just can't cross it. And then the one who waits intervenes and what does he sprain his ankle in the process or something when he's, when he's he holding the door shoulder or, maybe, or yeah. shoulder. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, they did kind of set it up where a few scenes prior, one who waits says, you know, that's it. I'm sorry. You know, I'm going to go. And I guess maybe that's why it kind of leaves our mind that maybe one who waits is doing, but I I'll be remiss before I, turn this over to Ken if I don't say at the very beginning where one who waits says you know I, I looked and looked and looked for your dad so many times I thought I'd have to change my name to one who walks <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I could have been doing a lot of other things these past <laughs> few years <laughs> I could have been relaxing I could have been smelling food um yeah I didn't think one who waits was holding the door either Jacob Barney it just it's it was a nice irony, I thought, that Ed can't escape from this situation and perhaps he will turn around and, and he does turn around and just says, I'm your son. And and then they the pause is is just beautifully done to wait for reactions. Just a beautiful moment. Uh yeah, Ed certainly doesn't want to disappoint one who waits, and he has disappointed him and um, Ed is, is the guy who wants to please in, in every aspect of what he does. And wonderful conversation of reconciliation between the two. Uh, so many just tender moments. When he first meets Pete, it's Pete, right? Mm -hmm. His dad is Pete, yeah. Uh, he meets Pete and they sit down for lunch and talk about how Ed eats his sandwich. And, and Pete reaches over and wipes something off Ed's face. Ah, uh, brilliant, brilliant. Just a touching, even though he has no idea 
the yeah. depth of their relationship. Wow. Yeah. And he never got mad. He didn't get mad or frustrated with Ed. You know, he said, it's obvious yeah. as the mustard on your face that, you know, you don't know your way around <laughs> laying down shingles. And, and then he said, I'll help you with it after, you know, lunch here. And there's, like you say, there's really a lot of tender moments. And, and then just to, to comment on this too, before, um, um, you know, before we, Jacob, uh, hear what you have to say, but yeah, I never realized that it never dawned on me, but yeah, Ed wants to make one who waits happy too. You know, he felt bad for one who waits dedicating so much time to him as well, even though he's, you know, dead. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, he really felt a connection with him too. I thought, I thought it was really sweet too, just thinking about Ed, how one of the first things he tells his dad after he reveals that he's his son is he says, I'm okay. I, I have friends. I have a, a place where I belong and I'm, I, things have turned out fine. I'm okay. And, and his eyes have such sincerity and love and care when he says that. And his dad reveals like for years he had thought of his son and wondered, you know, is that, could that boy there be the same age as my son? I wonder if that could be him. I wonder how he's doing and kind of the closure um, that that would bring just to find these, hear the words from his son. I, I everything's okay. I turned out okay. And, um, and to see the love in his son's eyes, when he says that I must've been um, such a relief and a, like a, an unexpected surprise of, of joy and for him to have that. And mm. so I thought they did that really well in the show. I thought there was a nice tie-in um, earlier. Ruth Ann, for our viewers, had told a story to Ed about um, a young man in her life. Um, long story short, um, his girlfriend became pregnant and, and the guy shipped off. And Ed's listening to this in lieu of what happened with his father. Um, and Ruth Ann says he was just a boy. He was just a boy. And I loved how the writers then had Ed tell that story to his father after he says, I'm your son. And his father could have responded in a number of ways because his father had to be listening to that story going, well, that's not exactly the way it went. But he didn't challenge Ed on it. He simply understood that this was Ed's way of, of the revealing and what he felt about his dad and how his dad must have faced that situation. What did you guys glean from that? Yeah, I, I really appreciated that. I thought that was kind of a, that was very, very true to Ed's character that that he would repeat that story thinking that that, that is exactly it. I mean, just through his occasional nervousness, I guess, that he gets, um, we see in his character. And then, so just trying to get the words out, just trying to get past the initial shock of I'm your son, you know, he wants, also wants his dad to be reassured that he understands, you know, he doesn't resent him for leaving him, you know, with the tribe, you know, he doesn't resent him for not take, trying to take care of him or trying to make a family with his mom, you know, he just wants him, his dad to know 
as soon as possible that he's okay with with it and he just wants his dad to know who, who he is and it was i thought that was great you know just true to true to ed's character and just really neat the way that, that they the writers had him say that and and then I, just like you said that the dad went with it you know and and then and then led up to the, ed's probably other question saying you know i'm sorry but i lost track of your mom and i i don't know where she is It was really kind of interesting how Ed, because he was reticent to reveal who he was to his dad right away, it gave them a chance to get to know each other um, before that news was shared. And I wondered if that progression didn't help ultimately uh, the his father receive that news well, because he had seen Ed work, you know, they had had a meal together and then, you know, this third interaction or fourth, I'm not sure how many, um, by that point, they'd talked a number of times and there was just a little bit of a rapport that had developed. And so mm -hmm. I don't know it, it, in a way it, because Ed is, yeah, because of the way that it emerged, it was almost like, uh, it created a different space instead of just that first moment when he saw him, it, it actually gave a little bit more generous space for them to, mm -hmm. to really encounter each other. So. Yeah, I think that's very valid, Jacob. Ed shows up at a work site, and initially Pete thinks that he's there because he's supposed to be there. Quickly, he learns that's not the case. So now Pete has to start thinking, then what's his presence here mean? And it goes from there. Yep. Definitely. Well, um, I'm curious, Jacob, how did you, just before we talk about maybe the last little aspect of the the um, video. How, how did you feel at the very first scene when we see um, one who waits again? Did, oh. did you wonder why, why is he back? I, I was excited to see him because I, I think he's such a, oh, yeah. um, an enjoyable character and the way that they left things um, when we did our previous episode, it, it was a, ambiguous and you know the one who waits is kind of apologetic you know uh, oh i'm sorry i wasn't able to help you find what you were looking for ed and and it's just exciting to see him come back on scene oh i wonder what news he has you know what because it kind of seemed resolved for us by the end of that other episode oh ed in a way found his father but then the one who waits comes and he has it on good authority that it's somebody different than what Ed was thinking. And so, um, yeah, I, I love that character. And, and it was really neat how Shelly remembered um, when they go and they they're sitting in the brick and they're going to eat or the one who waits is going to smell the food. And she remembers last time that he didn't like a certain thing with the burger. So she's kind of very um, willing to meet Ed where he is, you know, and, Whereas Joel is like, you know, questioning his you know, me um, mental state, you know, are, are you having hallucinations? Maybe you should see me if this persists. <laughs> He's not willing. Um, but, but it's funny how Shelly asks, is he sitting here? And, and, and Ed kind of moves her finger. No, he's like, and she speaks towards him. I mean, just, I love that about, about her, how she's w willing to meet people where, where they are without judgment. Um, how about you, Ken? Were you, when you saw the one who waits, how did you feel? I felt like welcome back. Um, let's see. Let's see what he's got. Mm. 
I, I would not have said, I, I don't, I'm sure back when I first saw it, I didn't sit there thinking about the titles of the episodes like we do. Um, for me, it was just kind of let it unfold. Um, so that that's kind of a different view from seeing it now, years and years and years later. You, you know, you mentioned Joel and how he's unwavering in his belief that Ed is bordering on the psychotic. I, you know, I, I, it's the fourth season, and and in some ways, Joel's progression has has continued to be. You know, he just has those moments where he just hasn't progressed very well in certain areas. But that was his character. It's neat you brought that up. <laughs> Comedic. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of like the point we were saying earlier about the piano tuner who seeks to be himself and true to himself. And when he sees Holling being his authentic self, he's more accepting. Joel is himself, <laughs> even if it's skeptical yeah. and, you know, scrutinizing the beliefs of, of Ed, there's no, he's not playing a role. Like he's definitely, that would be his equivalent of concern or care, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and Ed seems to get that. Uh, I just, personally find Shelley's a little bit more um, moving and inspiring, but I get it. Joel is trying to care for Ed in his yep. own way, but you're right. The growth piece. Yeah. He, in that area, he's just so committed to his uh, scientific worldview and how he understands it. There's not a lot of space for wonder to, you know, um, expand that for in the, as it relates to Ed's experience. But um, well, um, it, you wonder, you wonder if the writers um, considered having Arlen and, Joel have scenes together. Mm. I mean, the, the potential there for the explosive comedy. Oh, yes. Rich, but you can only do so much in 44 minutes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sorry, Jacob. You were. Oh, no. On. No. Um, I was wondering, are you guys okay with transitioning to um, the, the duet of Maggie and Mike? Yeah, I thought, I thought that. Um... That that would be with the time we have left. Maybe it's just the right amount of time for for their story. So, the, the, I think Jacob, this is your first time to meet Mike. So he um, has multiple um, chemical sensitivity. I guess MCS is what they say it. So he has real bad reactions to like you know anything that's not um, you know not natural, not organic, you know things like that. So he's he's found you know Sicily. He said is the the furthest place away from you know, like um, pollution and contamination and whatnot, that has a certified doctor nearby to um, help him out. So that's why he's there. And and he he feels like he's extra sensitive. Um, so that's why he's kind of going out to see, you know, how his how he reacts, how his system reacts to whatever these chemicals might be. Um, I think when, when I was thinking of the question that I wrote about um, uh, in the previous episode, we talked a lot about being people not being able to see things, being blind to certain things. I wonder what your guys' thoughts were. My kind of inspiration with that question was um, actually Maggie in this case, where she is convinced that she is cursed. You know, she she drops this bomb on Mike. She says, you know, <laughs> he takes it a lot better than he could have. This is Alaska and rural Alaska of all places. And she says, I kill men. <laughs> You know? Can I can I read the text from that part? Because I wanted to bring that up. Yeah, do, do you mind? Yeah. yeah, yeah so ahead. Maggie says, Mike, you don't want to get involved with me. 
Um, I don't want to get you involved with me. I'm like toxic sludge. I'm the global warming and the greenhouse effect all rolled into one. And Mike is like, Maggie, what are you talking about? And she says, the kiss was great. It's just, I kill men. And then she goes on to tell Mike uh, that there are five guys that this has happened to. And he says, five guys. Yes. I admit that's strange, but there is no cause and effect here. And Maggie says, and this line is something else. She says, yes, there is. I'm the cause. Death is the effect. Right. <laughs> and she's <laughs> like, you're right. She's convinced. And it it's getting to the point where it's preventing her from having any relationship. And um, it would be great to hear your take on that. And also about Mike's response. Right. Yeah. I think that, um, in this case, and then we see with their relationship over just um, another little bit of this season that it lasts, that he, he, as much as he credits her with healing him, helping him to get better, um, he, he, we see, kind of heals her and gets her past this notion that, that she's cursed and that she's, you know, toxic ways, toxic sludge. And, but... Um, she really, uh, you know, I think that um, Rick died in season two, maybe at the end of season two. So she's been struggling with this and convincing herself, you know, kind of that that she's un, unlovable or not worthy, not not a person that, that should be trying to think of something long term with anyone, you know, because of what has happened to these boyfriends that she's had and um we finally see this kind of rebalancing um in her life when she meets mike and and i think it's probably a few episodes later when um she's feeling that she's like a force of good she says you know she's giving good advice to people and she's helping people fix things and you know she can't believe that that you know who she was is she'd been defining herself as this boyfriend killer for so long, you know, not, not intentionally. And and now she, Mike helps her to see herself, not in this episode, but later as, as who she could be. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, to me, to me, it's um, all of Maggie's relationships as seen on the show and not, there were always difficult aspects of what have, what has she gotten into this time? And, and now that there's been five abject failures, she has to be thinking with Mike, who is really just a character um, not like anyone around Sicily, certainly, or anyone else she's ever met in her life. And now she's, she's being asked to open the door to a relationship with a person like this. And it's easy to respond, I think, with, um, not only the hesitation, but I've got a very good reason for not getting myself involved in this, and that is I kill men. Um, I always found the, the relationship, the bringing Mike into the show is kind of awkward, but at the same time, it added a, a really different facet to, to the um, program in that he is unlike anyone in this area. Yeah. Are yeah there, that's and, a, oh, please yeah. go ahead, Barney. I was, I was just going to say that was that was a great way to put it, especially 
um, yeah, when Mike's character is brought into the show, it's hard to see what the purpose of it is, but um, they really developed it. And I'm not sure if they even knew where, why or where he was going other than, you know, here's this um, really good actor. Let's give him, you know, a start on this show before he goes to ER, you know, and, <laughs> but um yeah it's nice the way that, that 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 his story evolved and then they they um worked his character into something meaningful um at the very end and um you know I, there was the the one book that i have um that um the actor who portrayed ed wrote you know he said that they actually received a little bit of negative um uh responses from fans about the way that they portrayed mike and as some people you know, really do have multiple chemical um, sensitivity and the, the, the way that their life runs is, is not at all like how they portrayed him. Um, and so, yeah, it was good that, that they, the way that they worked it out and, and he was a, a vehicle to help Maggie move on and also to um, help, help the other characters get a little bit closer throughout the um, rest of the season too. Oh, thanks for explaining that. And, I was wondering, are there any other comments that either of you would like to share before Barney closes for us today? Been enjoyable as always. Yeah, I when, agree. When, when, when I can sit here and learn something by virtue of simply listening to other commentary, I hope that translates well for, for your audience. Well, likewise, same same for you, Ken. I've, we, we, I think we learn a lot also from mm -hmm. you too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, um, as I've been looking forward to this episode, um, I had the thought and want to reach out to the students who might be listening or watching along, you know, what we're doing here is probably what your English lit teachers want you to do when you have some poem or some, you know, um, story that you're supposed to explicate, you know, and they, they want you to dig down deep and, you know, bring out the meaning within it. And, and this, this is just what we're doing with this TV show. And, you know, you know, if you have the chance to think outside the, you know, if your professors or teachers are willing, you know, why not find some show or some, um, you know, song or some whatnot that you, that you really enjoy and surprise them with um, some of your own explication, just doing what we're doing, you know, looking for the deeper meanings in these shows. And as you can see, hopefully um, in our cases, um, it really brings a lot of joy and satisfaction and and um, fulfillment to us as we um, watch these episodes and talk about them. And we hope that um, all of you out there speaking to our entire audience um, uh, get something out of it too. Um, whether you've seen the show before um, many times or one time or not even yet. Um, but regardless, we are glad that you tuned in for today. And um, as always, for uh, Jacob and for Ken, uh, I am Barney. This is the Two World Podcast, and we thank you.